The scripture reading this morning is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, many people have already said, I thought your prayer time already started. No, it begins tomorrow. And uh, then after I would tell them that, many people seemed a little disappointed. (laughs) And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know what to make of that. So (laughs) I'm going to assume the best. (laughs) Um, It does begin tomorrow. And uh, I'll see you guys on Sundays, but I will be away uh, during the week. And uh, thank you for everyone who's praying with me in the weeks ahead. Now let's take a moment and turn to the Lord in prayer right now as we turn to his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us right now. Uh, We don't just gather, Lord, in a building. We gather before your throne, and we thank you that by power of your Holy Spirit, you meet with us. So Lord, come and speak to us through your word. Change us and glorify only you. We pray this in your name, Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. Well, one day you guys are going to meet an older man or a woman. It may be five years, 15 years, 30 years in the future from now, but uh, that person is going to be waiting for you. Uh, That person might be humble, loving, warm, generous, uh, someone who's grown old gracefully, surrounded by friends, who call that person blessed because of what their life has meant to them, or that person uh, may be bitter, disillusioned, uh, without a good word for anyone, sour, friendless, alone. Uh, That person's going to be you. The question is, which person will you meet 5, 15, 30 years down the road? You see, that person, he or she, will be a composite 
of all you do say and think today and tomorrow and every day because that person's mind has been shaped by your beliefs his or her heart has grown into what you've put there and every little thought every little deed goes into this older person you see every day in every way you are becoming more and more like yourself you're beginning to look more like yourself think more like yourself talk more like yourself and you've probably had this experience with an older person could be a family member who seems so rigid in certain ways fixed and inflexible well that's because they are a composite of all their thoughts all their words all their heart attitudes day after day after day and they've become exactly more and more of who they are it happens to all of us question is who are you going to meet And I open this way, uh, one, because for me, that makes me think about the choices I make today, you know, the choices I make tomorrow in life. But also, I open this way because it's what James has been hinting at in all the verses we've experienced so far in chapter 1. And he continues the thought today, and you could say it this way, is that what James is getting at is that we are never spiritually static We are becoming more and more of who we are, and particularly it is the trials in life that shape us one way or the other. Now, this section can be a little confusing. We're going to focus exclusively, well, almost exclusively on verses 13, 14, and 15 today, even though a longer passage was read. And and the reason it can be confusing is sometimes people think, well, James is just shifting gears here all of a sudden and like changing his topic. That's not actually what's happening. And the reason it's confusing is because it's like, well, I thought he was talking about trials and now he seems to be talking about temptation. Here's the thing. It's the exact same word. The word he uses in verse 2 and following for trials is the exact same word he uses now in verses 13, 14, and 15 for temptation. Greek does that sometimes, and what it, the way you know which it is is by the context. And so he's not actually totally changing gears on us, but it all goes into his overarching argument is that everything, all of these trials particularly, are shaping us one way or the other. And you've heard already that trials can make you a much better person. They can develop within you perseverance, overcoming victory in life in different ways. That's the good and positive side of these things. However, now what he does today in verses 13, 14, 15 says, watch out though, because something can creep into the midst of these things, desire that will lead you to sin and to death. And so the very same thing that can make you better can actually make you worse if you're not careful. And and you remember if you were here last week, it's not just the bad things in life. Remember, trials are good and bad things. And last week you saw how poverty is a trial, but also riches are a trial. And both of those things can move you one way or the other. They can make you more humble and thankful and generous, 
Or, you know, like riches, they can breed pride, contempt to other people, thinking you're a self-made individual, and you go in a worse direction. The very same trial may cause you to put roots deeper into Christ or may cause you to reject him altogether. And that's the warning James gives us. And he opens by saying this, if you're, when you're tempted to go that other route, don't say, it's God who's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. See, what James does is he says, don't say it's providence or God's sovereignty that's tempting you to sin. God doesn't. He can't. And James doesn't even do this. You might say, expect him to say, well, of course, it's the devil then, or spiritual forces of evil that are causing me to go this way. He doesn't even bring that up. He says it's much more sinister than that. In fact, the problem's within us. Don't blame God. Don't blame people or spiritual forces. Look within. And no one wants to admit that. You see, ongoing patterns of sin develop you more and more into the person of who you are. And James is giving us a warning. Watch out for that. Now let's look at what he says about temptation. Because in these short verses... Um, he's going to give us a couple of pictures. Now, if you want a definition of temptation, very simply, it's enticement to sin and evil. And he uses two pictures to explain what temptation is all about. We read first, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, here's the image. It's a fishing lure. If you're reading the NIV, like our translation is, that word dragged away is lured. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because what are fishermen trying to do? Hook a fish and drag them out of the water and onto the dinner plate or into the boat or whatever. And James's point with this is we are dragged away, we are lured by our own evil desire and enticed He's getting at this, deception's always involved. Anyone here a fisherman? A fisherwoman? Yeah, okay, some of you. You know what? You practice, you are liars, and you are liars to the fish. You know, that's, that's the nature of fishing, right? You don't put food on a string and just drop it in the water. You stick it with a hook, or you put something pretty around the hook. You are lying to the fish all the time. And that's what James says. You need to be aware that's exactly what temptation does. It's lying to you. It's deceiving you. It, it looks good. It looks attractive. You know, we're never attracted to something we don't desire. If something is repulsive to you, you're not really going to be tempted towards that thing. It's something that you want, that's attractive to you. That's what is going to hook you if you're not careful, and that's where there's deception involved. Uh, somebody told me after first service, they heard this old quote that uh, deception 
always precedes destruction. You know, don't, and, and James is saying, this is how serious it is. No, temptation always involves deception. For a fish, it's like a lure. And James says, it's how it is for us too. Uh, John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors, wrote in a book, this was about eight years ago, he wrote a book called The Me I Want to Be, and he talks about the very first time he and his wife Nancy went fly fishing. And I'll read you part of what he writes. He says, our guides told us that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. They said that to a fish, life is about the maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure of energy. To a fish, life is see a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. You know, a rainbow trout never really reflects on where his life is headed. A girl carp never says to a boy carp, I don't feel you're as committed to our relationship as I am. I wonder, do you love me for me or just for my body? Fish don't think that way. Fish are a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. And he writes, while we were on the water, I was struck by how dumb the fish are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing. It's just a lure. You'll think it will feed you, but it won't. It'll trap you. If you were to look closely, fish, you'd see the hook. You'd know once you were hooked that it's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. You would think fish would wise up and notice the hook or see the line. You'd think that fish would look around at all their fish friends who go for a lure and fly off into space and never return. And would think, what's up? But they don't. It's ironic. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. And he ends by saying, aren't you glad we're smarter? This is what James is warning us of. Temptation involves deception, and there's something held out before you. You can say it this way. Sin promises a lie. This is good for you. This is what will give you pleasure. This will fulfill you, or even this is what you've been looking for all your life. Take a bite. See how good it is. And James says, watch out. That's how temptation works. It entices you. It looks good. It promises you something that's a lie. And we fall for it far too often. And here's the really bad thing. Where desire for sin and opportunity meet, there's disaster. You realize this, don't you? That, um, you know, we read the Old Testament story of King David, and we think, I'd never do what he did with Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, David, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's up on the rooftop. He sees a woman taking a bath. He's very attracted to her. So you know what happens? Desire. There's a promise. And the next thing you know, David is sleeping with her. And then to hide it, he ends up killing her husband. And we say, I'd never do that. 
don't think so highly of yourself. Why a lot of people don't, don't do that is you don't have a chance to do it. You just don't have the opportunity to fulfill the desire. If you did, what would really happen? You know, what happens when you're out of town on a business trip and you're in a bar till 2 a.m.? Or you get in an elevator with somebody and they start flirting with you? What happens when your spouse is out of town and you've got the whole weekend to yourself and rather than be with friends or whatever, you get on the computer? Where do you go? What happens when you've got an opportunity to tweak the truth a little bit to secure the deal? You see, where desire for sin and opportunity intersect, that's when disaster happens. Now, I've often talked to people, I mean, just part of my job, I talk to people who do swan dives into sin all the time. A lot of them are here in the room. You know, I mean, yeah, we're, if you're visiting Stonebridge, we're a room full of really messed up people. We're people who've bitten on the hook. There, there aren't, you know, we may look nice, we're really screwed up, okay? Because we're a room full of sinners. So, so let's just get that out of the way. There's no one here who's super Christian other than Doug. And Doug's humble about that. So, I have no idea. I mentioned Doug and I forget what I was talking about. So, <laughs> um, oh yeah, dealing with people who swan dive into sin like Doug. Um, you know, what, what, what sticks with me, nothing shocks me these days. I've heard it all. Rampant drug addiction, people who've had like 30 plus affairs, one person having like 30 plus affairs, people engaging in brutality, people who are deceiving and manipulating and lying. I mean, I mean it's just, it's everything. And, and so nothing ever shocks me. If you think you have some eye-popping sin, share it to me. I'll probably say, yeah. You know what I never get over, though, is this. The pain that the sin creates. What, what, what is so palpable to me is the after effects of biting on the lure and being drug off into sin and the rampant pain that develops. The pain of the soul, the pain that bleeds out to husbands and wives and children in different ways. I remember I have a good friend who he lied to his children and to his wife for decades about their financial status. They had multiple homes, nice cars. He was seen as very successful. And it was all a sham that he hid by spending like crazy on credit cards, getting multiple lines of credit and second mortgages. It was all a mirage. And when it all came crumbling down, there was nothing but pain. I remember talking with him as he's weeping on, on the phone with me, opening his heart up, how do I tell my wife and kids? And then there was all the pain for, of the wife and kids. That's the, th that's the thing about sin that never, I never get used to, is the depth 
of the pain. And, and, and see, that's part of the promise of the lie. No, no, this is good. This will fulfill you. This will make you happy. And it's all a lie, and it will produce just the opposite effect in your life. I've dealt with so much pain from infidelity. And, and, and over and over again, no matter what the sin is, here's what I hear people say. It wasn't worth it. I thought this, and it delivered this. And if I could just go back, because none of it was worth it. You see, temptation will always look good. But you have to look for the hook, friends, because it's waiting to drag you away. That's the first image. The second image he gives is a sexual one. And and not sexual in the way you may be thinking, but sexual in the sense of conception and birth. Because James goes on and says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Picture of conception and birth. You could put it this way. Desire gets pregnant and has a baby. She names that baby sin. Sin grows up and also breeds And sin names her baby death. And and the problem is, desire to sin, sin to death, the gestation cycle isn't nine months. It can be milliseconds. Desire, sin, death. I mean, it can happen just like that if you're not careful. The death comes from the sin. The sin comes from the desire. And you, you know the pattern of this in your life. I sure do. It looks good. Before you know it, I'm choosing. And then the death comes. Ultimately, it's eternal spiritual death. But there's temporal spiritual death in this sense. Separation from the Lord's presence. Guilt. Shame. It's all part of death. And it's a warning for if you remain in that state, what's to come? Desire breeds sin, sin breeds death. Desire sometimes, depending on the translation you have, is sometimes translated lust in this passage. And I get that, particularly given the image James gives of conception and birth. But, but if that is your translation, know this. The word is not limited to lust. So don't think of this only in terms of sexual imagery of lust. And and the reason English translators have a hard time with this word for desire is we don't have a, a truly comparable word. Because what James does is he takes the word for desire in Greek and he attaches a prefix onto it, which makes it basically this, a super desire, an ultimate desire and over-desire. And, and what he's getting at is this. So, because you know this. If you think logically about it, not all desires are bad, are they? Uh, you may be single here today, and your desire is for a potential spouse. Maybe you're lonely, and your desire is for a friend. Maybe you're out of work, and your desire is for a job. Those are not bad things at all. The problem is when they become super-desires. 
And, and what James is getting at is this, desire is not that we just want bad things, it's that we want things too badly. See, it's not just bad things, even good things, wanting them too much is what will kick off this cycle of desire to temptation, sin to death. Here's why this is so important. Do you, do you typically think of sin as breaking the rules? If so, most people do. You think, okay, well, God gave a list of commandments, and we better keep them, and if we don't keep the rules, we get punished, right? And not keeping the rules mean that we do bad things that we shouldn't do, or we fail to do good things that we should do. And, you know, that's a fair enough understanding of sin, but know this, it's very limited, That's a very basic, and it's not a full biblical understanding of what sin is. Because sin is not just breaking the rules. God certainly doesn't see it that way. You know how God sees sin? Spiritual adultery. And that's what James is getting at in this passage. The reason people sin, the reason I sin, is I'm enticed away into the arms of another lover. You see, anything we want more than God becomes an over-desire. It is an over-desire, and it leads to sin. And, and, and just to try and apply this to your heart, it, the Bible says this over and over and over again. It's not just James. James is seeped in Old Testament theology, and over and over and over again in the Older Testament, here's what it says. I am your spouse, Israel. You are my bride, and when you choose sin, you choose to live as whores. You run to the arms of other lovers, and it breaks my heart. I mean, you can imagine the pain of marital infidelity. God says, that's what sin does to me. Sin doesn't just break my rules. Sin breaks my heart. Because I love you perfectly and wholly and want to give myself completely to you in intimacy and goodness, and you run to the arms of whores. I know that sounds like strong language, and I am not exaggerating, because that is the image of the Bible. There's a whole book of the Older Testament that's all about this. Sin is whoredom. Sin breaks the Lord's heart. There's nothing wrong if you're lonely with wanting a friend, but you want that friend more than you want God? Now you've run to the arms of another lover rather than the one who can satisfy you. You want that career more than God? Now it's become a super desire. See, it's not just wanting bad things. It's wanting anything more than you want God himself. Sin is spiritual infidelity. And this is what James says, and it all comes from within. It's almost like a horror flick. It came from within. It comes from within. 
We can't blame God. We can't blame the evil one. We have to look inside. Uh, One of our staff members, Ruth Ann Birch, shared with me something she had read this week, and I thought it was so appropriate. Paul Tripp, who's a pastor, he writes, and I'll, I'll put a very brief part of this up. He says, it's hard to admit that we have a problem we cannot solve. We like to convince ourselves that our anger tells us more about the flawed people we live near than it tells us about ourselves. We like to think that our impatience is more about the poor planning or character of the people we have to deal with every day. We like to think that our sin can be blamed on the temptations of the fallen world around us. When we do or say what is wrong, we tend to point to a boss, a spouse, one of our kids, a friend, a difficult situation, a lousy day, the fact that we aren't feeling well, bad parents, some injustice, or a long catalog of other excuses. But the Bible's quite clear. We all suffer from the same terminal disease. None of us has escaped it. It's not caused by the people or situations around us. We brought this destroyer into the world with us. David said it this way, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's simply no denying the harsh reality of the Bible's hard-to-accept message. We are our own biggest problem. We are the thing with which we need help. There is no greater danger than the danger we are to ourselves. And we need help that we cannot give ourselves. We need help that is deeper than education, socialization, politics, changes of relationship, changes of location. None of those will fix the problem within. And if left on our own, we're doomed. So what do we do? How how do we not take the bait, get drug away into this constant pattern of desire, sin, death? Three things very briefly. First is this. How can we escape this cycle? First, know the cycle. Learn to see what's happening in the moment when the enticement arises. In other words, look for the hook. You see, in a a time of trial, it's much easier to slip backwards than it is to move forward. No one backslides into broccoli. You know, maybe that's your favorite vegetable, whatever. No one backslides into broccoli. No one wakes up one morning and says, you know what? I got up and the next thing I know, I had done 100 push-ups. No. Those things take effort. They take work. And part of breaking the sin cycle is know the cycle and actually put effort to breaking it. Pray that you have discernment to see the truth when tempted. Work on developing other patterns. You find certain besetting sins in your life happen all the time? Look for the pattern. Break the pattern. Short-circuit it. Choose to do something different. Call a friend. Pray like crazy. Effort is involved. I've shared this with you before. If you sow a thought, you'll reap an action. 
So an action, you'll reap a habit. So a habit, you'll reap a character. So a character, you'll reap a destiny. It all gets back to you are becoming more and more you every day. Who do you want to become? And and if you think what I just said sounds like, well, man, that sounds like works-oriented salvation, not grace. It's not at all. Grace is never opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning it. I'll say it again. Grace is never opposed to personal effort. It is always opposed to earning. But effort is not enough. So that's why we don't have just one. Here's the second thing. See far enough ahead. If you back up to verse 12, James said this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's reminding us, see beyond the immediate. There is something held out for you that's beautiful and glorious. See beyond it and push through the desire. So take a longer view. And then finally, and this I think is the most important one, the only way that we'll ever break the hold of a sinful desire on our soul is to show our soul something more beautiful than the desire that's got it. You see, all temptation is spiritual passion. Your heart, my heart, our souls have longings that we're seeking to fulfill. We look for meaning in life, purpose, just joy in different ways. It's all a spiritual passion. And, and, and if there's something that's sinful that has its hooks in you, what it means is you are turning to that thing for meaning, purpose, joy, whatever, something other than the Lord. And, and here's my point. We've got to move beyond just knowing that God loves us to experiencing it with our entire being. You know what? You you can quote all the Bible verses you want. You can talk about God loving you. If you don't know that, other things will always seem more attractive to you. My friends, the reason sin is held out as spiritual adultery is because there is someone who loves you. Maybe God's talking to you right now. Hear this. There is a God, and He loves you far more than you could ever imagine. He loves you so much that He gave His best, His Son, to die on a cross for you, to deal with all of our sin, to promise us a future, to give us joy and meaning and purpose in life. You have a lover of your soul And it's not enough just to hear that. You've got to let it penetrate your heart. And when it penetrates your heart, that's when the other hooks will come undone. And you'll stop running to the whores looking for fulfillment. You see, the true antidote here is the love and the goodness of God. Jesus was stripped and disfigured so that one day you and I will receive a white robe. He was poor and hungry, cursed as he was nailed to the cross, so that we might be blessed and enter the great banquet feast of heaven one day.
God loves you more than you could imagine. He says, turn to me and I will fulfill your greatest desires. Let me end with this. Some of you, if you're a literature major, you probably had to read this book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a novel by Oscar Wilde about a young, hedonistic British aristocrat of the late 1800s. Long story short, Dorian Gray, who's this very handsome young man, commissions one of his best friends, Basil, to paint a portrait of himself. And it's a spitting image. It looks as good as Dorian himself. And then, shortly thereafter, Dorian basically makes a deal with the devil that I'll give you my soul for eternal youth. And the way it plays out in the story is this, is that Dorian never changes. And he's a hedonistic young man, and he chooses sin. He's getting hooked all the time, uh, swan diving into sin, and he never changes. He looks as youthful and beautiful as ever, even 20 years later. And yet the picture, with every sin, it changes. Every bad choice, every swan dive, every harsh word, the picture changes and it becomes more and more disgusting as the years go by. And and so 20 years have passed and Dorian and his friend Basil get together. And what Dorian has done is because the picture became so grotesque and disgusting, he hid it away and he'd go look at it occasionally. And so his friend Basil's there, the original artist, he says, Basil, do you think it's only God who sees the soul? I can show you mine. And he takes him upstairs to where the picture's hidden, and he removes the cloth. And Basil, he's shocked by what he sees before him. What is this monstrosity? This isn't my painting. And Dorian's like, can't you see? That's the ideal me. That's who I've been becoming all these years. And I won't spoil it for you if you want to read the book. It's fascinating, but it's a wretched ending. But as Basil's there with Dorian, he says, Dorian, someone heard your prayer of pride asking for eternal youth. Certainly God will hear your prayer of repentance. Pray with me. Don't you remember? Forgive us our sins. Wash us whiter than snow. And Dorian says, no, no, it's, it's too late for me. My friends, it might have been too late for Dorian Gray. You have today. Who are you becoming tomorrow? Who are you going to meet down the road if God gives you the days 15 years from now? Who are you becoming? Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Forgive us for taking sin far too lightly. Forgive us for thinking it's a little thing. Lord, help us to hate it because of what it does to you. Lord, you suffered on the cross for us, but the physical suffering was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering you took based because of our sins. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much with a perfect love that will never fail. We love you, Lord, and help us to love you more every day. In your name we pray, amen.